0: For 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Impeachment. Welcome to Inside the Hive. Impeachment. I'm your host, Impeachment, Nick Bilton. Now, can anyone guess what we're going to be talking about this week? Come on. Let's see if you can guess. Let's say it out loud together, maybe your answer in three, two, one. 2, impeachment. Now, the big question I have is, will the impeachment hurt or hinder the Democrats' chances of winning the election in 2020? Well, who better to answer that question than David Plouffe, who is the genius who ran the Obama campaign in 08. He was uh, worked with the White House, the Obama White House. He is the guy who uh, you're about to hear from who literally thinks, eats, sleeps, drinks, electoral votes and how to win campaigns. It's really, honestly, I don't think I've ever spoken to someone who understands this process better than David. He has a new podcast out right now called um, Campaign HQ. And what that does is it he talks to people who run the campaigns that are currently going up against Donald Trump today, from Elizabeth Warren's campaign to Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, you name it. Uh, our conversation today is Truly fascinating, and it will tell you exactly what you probably are a little worried about, and maybe give you a little hope for what is going to happen uh, in the next, you know, eighteen months as we lead up to the election. So, without further ado, David Pluff. Thanks so much for joining me today. This is uh, this is probably the best week you could come on. I'm actually going to tell our listeners we recorded this a couple of weeks ago, screwed it all up, and I'm very very happy that we did because we get to talk about the impeachment, which is very exciting and fascinating. And I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on whether it's actually going to do anything. But I want to start with a question. In the beginning of your podcast, you say that this is the most important election probably in history. And when you look back at history and you see all the things that were going on every time there's a new election, it it feels like they all are. But is is this one different?
1: I think it is, Nick, and, and thanks for having me. Um, this isn't simply, you know, Republicans versus Democrats or different shades of uh, policy difference. I mean, I think um, we are we are going to survive four years of Trump, although we'll be digging out for a long time. I'm not sure we'll survive eight years. Our alliances may not. We may be fighting wars we shouldn't fight. I think, um, you know, the fact that we'll have eight years of president celebrating racism and misogyny, um, he has, you know, blown up the deficit, the largest deficit since World War II. So his second term, no doubt, <laughs> will be an effort to cut Medicare and Social Security very severely. So I do. I mean, I'm not sure. Um, uh, I'm not sure we will like who we are after four years. It's going to recover from that, but eight years, uh, the the compounding damage there, I think, is immense. Um, and you know, we saw. Um, you know, uh, w- we'll see ultimately. Uh, If around the globe, we see um, this kind of irresponsible nativism recede. um, But, you know, if Trump were to win, I think certainly you're going to see also the all around the globe, more candidates just like Trump. Uh, emerge. And so it's hard I think to fully calculate the effect of a two-term Trump presidency. Then let's get to the courts. I mean, we could have a 7-2 court, two more Kavanaughs on the bench. So maybe if that's all we talked you about just, that would make it one of the more important elections. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> no, that, I mean I think that that's to me, you know, I think what what's when we look at the impeachment stuff and we look at the courts and everything and we'll get to all, all of this, what is so fascinating is like all of the things this guy has done and he's still and we're now the thing that may take him down is the is like one extra thing he did. And I can't even comprehend what he would get away with if he won and got to serve another four years.
1: Oh, I mean, if he doesn't have to face the voters again, I mean, he he, he already ignores our institutions, any sort of precedent in terms of how a president should operate. I mean, he completely ignores them um, defiantly. So we're going to see that. um um, increase dramatically nothing will hold this guy back
0: all right so let me ask you a question real quick so yeah what the one of the things you had two sides of the aisle on the same aisle of course that were saying we should go and we should impeach him and others that were like we shouldn't because if we impeach him um in the same way you saw happen with clinton uh he there's you know he has the senate is not you need two-thirds of the senate to um to vote him out uh, they're not going to do this because it's majority Republican. And therefore he gets to say, look, you guys, you know, you had your Democratic House that did did the impeachment and, um, and look at the way it turned out and it could completely backfire. What is your mind of how this kind of works itself out as far as the 2020 election goes?
1: Well, I think to me that's secondary to the process itself. So um, there seems to be um, more than enough grounds to begin an impeachment inquiry. Um, and, and we'll see if we actually move to formalized proceedings. But if we do, it's because through all the testimony and, and evidence and research, that's the right thing to do. It's You know, I, I'd be disappointed if we, wanna, we won the House in 18. Uh, and if we've got grounds to um, impeach a president, that they wouldn't do that. Like, kind of, what's the point? So w- we have to do what's right. I know that no one believes that, like everything is viewed through the lens of what's the right political move. But just like, for instance, who you pick for your vice presidential nominee when you're running for president, the far more important question is, is who would be a good vice president if you'd win, not whatever modest effect they may have in the election, which is generally none. So this has to be about the substance, the constitution, what's right. Um, But to speak about the politics, I think it's far too early to know. Um, Here's what we know. No president wants to go into. First of all, the only president that was went through impeachment proceedings in their first term was Andrew Johnson. Okay, that was back in the '60s. <laughs> so I don't, 1860s. We can't draw many lessons from that. Nixon and Clinton were both in their second term. Very, very different. So um, you know, there is no playbook for this. But, 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 but I think it stands to reason. Even as crazy as, as Trump is, and he likes to dominate the oxygen and and the discussion in the world, um, I'm sure he would not have designed this. So um, that's not great. I think more things are going to come out to probably give voters a view that, like, you know what, even if I like some things this guy did on the economy, like, we just, can't we do better than this? Um, But I think on the flip side, Trump's using this very smartly already. He's running millions and millions of dollars of YouTube and Facebook ads um, and maybe other platforms to identify new supporters, register new voters, find new volunteers. So Trump is going to squeeze every benefit out of this. So even if if at the end of the day... It's, it's kind of a wash with swing voters in the middle. Um, the question is, Trump may ultimately win um, the battle of who used this most to drive up intensity in their base. Um, so I, I do worry about that, quite frankly. But, you know, now that, that the House has moved forward and I think it was the right thing to do, we just, they, they need to execute this all. The one thing they have to be mindful of is the stage manager of this is, is important. So not, not stage management in terms of um, facts, but, you know, how you manage this day to day, hour to hour, because you got to understand Trump is one person and the most important thing in Trump's world is to get reelected. He cares much more about that than doing the job as, uh, of president. But, you know, we've got House Democrats. a lot, Most of them care about beating Trump, if not all, but it's not their singular mission. They're members of Congress. They've got their own campaigns. We don't have an opponent against trump right now we got a gazillion people running around iowa trying to to be his opponent so that's an advantage to trump too they wake up each and every day and it's easier to call your play because it's one entity um you know so 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 really figuring out if it gets to hearings who's doing the questioning um how you stage manage that how you handle the press what's the social media plan so again i'm not talking about the facts of the case But but the choreography around this is really important. And it's always easier when it's like you versus, you know, 230 people, (laughs) which is the advantage Trump's going to have. So. So, again, I don't know how it's going to play out. But for Democrats who feel like, oh, this is another nail in Trump's coffin, I'd be super careful about going there. Because, you know, Trump just reported, we're, we're talking uh, on Tuesday of this week, Trump just reported his his fundraising numbers, it was off the charts, and he now has double the cash on hand that Barack Obama had at this time in 2011, so he's going to be fully resourced, um, they are really smart about digital and social media, I saw some ads over the weekend when I was just trolling around YouTube, some of them were quite good, um, So so they're going to get the most they can out of a bad situation.
0: You're scaring me. Sorry, I uh, I should have brought. I have a I have a bottle of water with me. I should have brought a bottle of whiskey for this conversation. Um, <laughs> all right. So w- when you look at the potential outcome of the impeachment hearings, do you think there's a? I mean, look, this is total pie in the sky. You know, wishes and hopes and dreams. But is there a chance that we impeach him in the House and the Republicans are like, you know what? This is insane. We could impeach him and we still could keep, you know, our Republican vice president. We can kind of get through this whole thing, put it all behind us and do the right thing. Or is that just me being kind of naive and ridiculous and stupid?
1: Yeah, I I don't think there's going to be any West Wing episodes uh, in this uh, (laughs) impeachment episode, sadly. I mean, you got to remember, even back during Watergate, when the polls moved, not just of the general electorate, uh, but of Republicans, Nixon was obviously... Um, getting pummeled day to day. I mean, half the Republican uh, members on the House Judiciary Committee did not vote for impeachment. So things are like a gazillion times more partisan now. So, um, yeah, I'd like to think that, that if enough comes out, it's clear that, A, these are high crimes and misdemeanors, and B, maybe at that point Trump is wounded electorally more than he is today, that some Republicans would step out. But I, I don't see it. I mean, I think the the one galvanizing principle right now of this modern Republican Party is cowardice. Um, and, and I think that's driven as it relates to Trump because his numbers amongst Republicans are still very, very high. But more importantly than his overall numbers of Republicans is, you know, the intensity of Trump supporters on the ground uh, is really incredible, and that's going to be asset for him in the general election. So, um, you know, the, the notion that we'd have that many Republicans ultimately decide uh, to sort of put party second uh, and put principle first, I, I think, is fantasy. Um, now, we shouldn't let him off the hook. Um, and, and I think those that, that vote against impeachment, like if Susan Collins votes against impeachment in Maine, uh, I think she could pay a price for that. But, but at the end of the day, I, I think here's what I think Democrats who are focused on beating Trump need to focus on. There are no shortcuts. We're not going to get a conviction. We're not going to get a resignation. We have to beat him in the election. And that election, even with his poll numbers as weak as they are, is going to be super hard because he'll overperform in battleground states. And the thing I'm the turnout is going to be astronomically high in this election across the board, which is good for democracy. But that's not all going to come from young minority voters. Um, there are a lot of unregistered voters who look just like Trump's base, and the Trump campaign will find them and they will register them and they will turn them out. So, any Democrat's going to have to beat Trump with exceedingly high Republican turnout. So, that is the task in front of us. We should pay attention to impeachment. We should lob calls into our representatives. We should share content that we think is persuasive about Trump's crimes and misdemeanors. But we have to be focused on the election. I, I don't think this movie's going to end with some shortcut. We're going to have to take them out the hardest way possible, which is to get to 270 electoral votes in the Electoral College on November 3rd, 2020. And if we don't do that, we have four more years of Donald Trump. And, that, and that's what we have to stay focused on.
0: When you look at some of the battleground states, you know, it, it, we I've written stories about this. We've seen stories. We've seen polls and everything that some of the states, you know, Texas could be purple. It could be, it could be red. It could be blue. We, we don't know. There's, you know, Georgia, Florida, all these things that are essentially that are in this place where more people are moving to the big cities. Uh, they are, of course, defining what these states become. Uh, the battleground states th- that we need to be kind of focused on, are those the ones that we're talking about um, right now? Or are they some that we're not even kind of aware of that could swing the entire thing? Well, my
1: sense that, first of all, it's important to, to, to remind folks that you know the Electoral College in terms of whether it breaks Republican or Democratic is not stagnant. So 1976, which is, you know, not that long ago, um, you know, Gerald Ford won all of New England and California and Washington, Oregon, (laughs) states that are all deep blue now. And and Jimmy Carter obviously did very well in in the South. Um, And so this this these change over time. So I'll first talk about 2020. So we know that that Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania will be core battleground states. I think you're likely to add Arizona to that mix, um, which is important because in a scenario where you don't win Wisconsin, which is 10 electoral votes, and you win Arizona that's 11, um, you're kind of held harmless. Um, I believe North Carolina, where we just won the governor's race, Obama won it once, lost it once narrowly, will be in play. Um, And I I hope Florida is. So um, Florida is a strong Trump state. A million more people voted uh, in 2016 and 2012. Some of that did go to Hillary. She actually got more votes than Obama did, even though we won it twice. But Trump really surged his turnout. But Florida is always close. That's the one state, even as states change around us, um, You know, going back um, a long, long time now, close in governor's races and Senate races, close in presidential. Uh, and with great registration and turnout, we can make it competitive. I think on Trump's side, he's going to try and make Minnesota a battleground state. And that was very close last time. I don't think it'll be a tipping point state, meaning the state that puts him at 270 if he wins, but I'm sure he'll want to contest Minnesota. And, you know, clearly they're going to look at New Hampshire, Nevada, New Mexico. Um, I think the Democrats should be favored in all those, but Trump's going to want to expand the target area and and target radius. On the Democratic side, in addition to Florida, I think they're going to have to look carefully at Texas and Georgia. Um, I I think um, the thing to remember, though, is you know, if you if you get close to the Electoral College and you lose one of those states 49-47, a lot of good comes from that in terms of the organization you build and maybe it helps some down-ballot candidates win. But, um, you know, we've got to win the presidency. Uh, and, and 47 might as well be, you know, 27 if it's on the losing end. So our candidate has to, and their campaign has to be dead certain that there's a pathway to a win number, um, 50% plus one. Doesn't mean they'll get there, but they have to be absolutely confident that if they run a good campaign if they have the kind of volunteers um, on the ground that they need if they have the financial resources that they can put that together so you always want to put pressure on your opponent um, so that you are increasing your margin for error uh, we certainly don't want to get down to election night 2020 and we're basically competing only in michigan pennsylvania and florida because then we have to win them all and even if we do that we win narrowly i think uh... we hopefully we have a candidate in a campaign that um, can inspire people um, and motivate people and reach voters. But to do that, by the way, to put states in play like that, you're going to have to be able to win suburban voters, win back some of these Trump-Obama voters, and motivate young voters and African-American voters and and Latino voters to volunteer, to register, to vote. So this question of, like, do we need a candidate who appeals more to the base or more to the middle? Um, Quite frankly, a winning presidential candidate needs to do both. Um, And they need to have a message and they need to be of of sufficient character and and integrity and and inspiration to do both. So um, I hope the battleground map is large, but that's the most important decision a presidential campaign makes is what is going to be a core battleground state. And particularly as it relates to Texas, you know, that could be a hundred million dollar question. It's not cheap. Hmm. So um, you better be sure there's a pathway to victory. And I know a lot of Democrats say, well, it'd be okay if we just get close because that means we're registering a lot of voters and we're setting Texas up for 2024. Same thing with Georgia. All that's true. But the presidential campaign has one job. Their job is to beat Donald Trump. That is uh, they're going to feel more pressure than I think most people can 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 understand to get that done. Uh, and if they don't do it, in part because they made some bad resource decisions or some bad targeting decisions, that would be historically tragic. So we should all have some sympathy for these folks. This this can't simply be about what's best for the party in the long run. They have to get to 270 votes. And if they don't, this election will be a failure no matter what else happens. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to The Political Gabfest. Fest, every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: One of the things that is so fascinating is this, you know, you look at the polls and when you look at the polls through history, um, how popular previous presidents were when they were heading into the the elections, it it doesn't seem to make a difference. Everyone, you know, for the the last three presidents, for the most part, you know, um, Obama, Bush, Clinton, they were all kind of hovering around the 50 percent mark, give or take a little bit depending on which week you looked at it. And when you look at the polls for the approval ratings of Trump, it's the same. It's, you know, maybe a little lower. It's in the depending on if you look at like a Rasmussen versus an ABC poll or something. You know he could be in the forties, forty-five, fifty percent. Do you think that this is going to come down to a handful of voters in in the country? I mean, one thing that's when you look at the the some of those states that actually did flip for him in 2016, it's thousands of voters. It's not a lot, um, and and part of the thing that that. You've talked about a lot before, is you know that how few people who had voted before voted because they didn't seem think they had the the, the perfect candidate. We had what ninety one million people who are eligible for, to vote who didn't even vote at all. Like, is this going to come down to, as it has in the past, just kind of how people feel that week when they go to the poll and uh, and a handful of voters that get to decide.
1: Well, first of all, I'd say on Trump's approval rating. Now, now, you know, we went through a period, um, you know, when I was in the White House in in 2011 with Obama, where our approval rating did dip, um, you know, into the 40s, um, even the low 40s, kind of during the debt crisis debacle. But, you know, it it sort of began to climb back up. Trump, um, so Rasmussen is like some, you know soft cozy blanket for Trump to wrap himself in like Fox News like let's not Rasmussen is, is complete nonsense Um, you know his his approval rating if you're the Trump campaign is deeply alarming Um, and and if you're a Democrat who, who wants to th- sleep easily here at night you would say well yeah he's gonna get good turnout and yeah he's gonna overperform the national polls in Wisconsin Michigan and Pennsylvania but can he really win with an approval number that low and and when you do head-to-heads with him versus most of the other candidates Um, You know, he's getting beat pretty soundly. So, you know, he's not entering the campaign the way you'd like. And his approval number has, you know, it's always had a low ceiling. Um, You know, we've never seen this guy in in any reliable survey bump up even at the high 40s. I don't see that changing. So that is cause for optimism. But let's break down the election. So so there's going to be, I think, historically high turnout. if if we don't do that on our side, we're going to lose. Because Trump's listen, the folks wearing the red hats with the white writing are coming out, and they're going to come out in, in numbers that are going to scare the bejesus out of us. So we've got to make sure we we do a great job on turnout and registration. Number one, number two, we are going to have to win more of the persuadable vote than he does, and those voters exist um, in in all the battleground states. People who are truly conflicted. There's not many of them, but in a close race, they can be uh, if not determinative. Uh, close to that, and then you know we've got to make sure that the voters um, who aren't going to vote for Trump um, uh, don't vote third party. You know that's something that hurt Hillary Clinton. Those Johnson Stein voters last time. Um, you know she suffered a lot more damage from that than Trump did. And so Trump very much would like to win election in in these battleground states, not having to get fifty percent of the vote, or even forty nine percent. You know, he won Wisconsin 47.2% of the vote. Think about that. He won uh, Michigan with 478 if I recall, or 477 That's what they want to do again. So all of the work they're doing around the field, you know, they're for infanticide. And they, you know, aren't let you, you're not going to be able to drive your car anymore, or fly on an airplane, or eat a hamburger, and they're socialists, and they're going to raise taxes in 100%, and they, you know, are going to destroy businesses. All of that is done in service, not to get votes for Trump, in my view. It's to get enough people saying, man, I don't like Trump. I'm not going to vote for him, but I can't do this Democrat either. So I'm going to vote third party because I'm definitely going to vote. So so, so every state, you know, the presidential committee is going to have to have a view of that, which is what's our strategy to, to lower the third party number, um, particularly as it relates to voters um, that might vote for us. What's our registration number? What's our turnout number? And what's our persuasion number? And every state's going to be different. So in North Carolina, to use an example, registration and turnout are probably going to be a bigger part of the mix than persuasion. Um, in Wisconsin, it's clearly going to be um, as important as registration and turnout It is. Let me just give you an example. So Hillary lost Wisconsin by, I think, 23,000 votes. She got 26 or 29,000 votes less than Obama in Milwaukee. So that's a problem. And you could say if we just get turnout back to where it was in 16 uh, or sorry, in 12, Hillary would win. Do any of us really want to go into the election with a margin of error of like 6,000 votes? Mm-mm. That's the definition no. of insanity. No. So, so you know, in blue collar areas, in in rural areas, in exurban areas, you know, Hillary got 250,000 less votes than Obama in Wisconsin. So. You know, let's try and get 50 or 75,000 of those people back. I'm not talking anywhere near even half of them. So, so so it's 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 a dangerous debate we have in our party sometimes about we have to choose. No, you don't have to choose. I mean, I've been part of winning presidential campaigns. You have to do both. And you know, the truth is in most battleground states there's more conservative voters than liberal voters. The gap's closed, thankfully. Um, And Republicans get their turnout much more reliably and much more easily. So the Republican sort of starts closer to the finish line than the Democrat does. We have to it's harder for us to turn out our voters. It's become harder because of all the voter suppression activities Republicans are engaged in. And we've got to win the swing vote, win the moderate vote. You have to do both. So and I guess, Nick, I would, uh, you know, maybe Trump ends up falling apart. Maybe we head into a recession. Maybe even if we don't. By the end, the thing just breaks against him, and he gets close to his approval number, and, and we win a comfortable presidential election. That would be awesome. But I think we better prepare that it's going to come down to a voter or two or three per precinct. Um, and and why I don't think that's just you know, trying to scare people is I do worry very much about the turnout Trump's going to get. They are a digitally sophisticated campaign. Um, we talk about the unregistered voters in America, and there's no doubt there's a tremendously large number of them. Um, who are African-American, Latino, younger, but they over-index in states like California, in Illinois, in New York. So in the battleground states, um, there's a heck of a lot of Trump voters out there um, who look just like Trump's base who aren't registered or don't vote. So, um, um, you know, if you look back at 2004, John Kerry um, got a lot more votes than Al Gore did um, in 2000, Um, but Bush really turned out every conservative voter you could ever imagine, It was kind of a a a feat that was hard to imagine. And my view would be we better assume that a lot of these battleground states in 2020 are going to be like Ohio in 04, that that there's going to be a ceiling and it's super high and somehow Trump reaches it. So we have to match that. Um, and And I think we can. Um, but it, this, this this is where I think his approval ratings can give you false comfort. I mean, I look at them too sometimes and feel like, oh, there's no way this freaking guy can win. <laughs> uh, but when you kind of look at at the votes he's going to be able to put together in some of these states, that's where it scares me a little bit. All
0: right, so I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of a PSA right now because I remember going into the evening. We all rem- I think it's like I remember nine, being in New York on 9 11, and I remember the moment that I realized Trump was going to win. And I remember, you know, looking at the polls that day and thinking, you know, that week going into it, oh, he's he's going to be destroyed. Like, this will shut that guy up. We won't hear from him again. Uh, we can all unfollow him on Twitter and so on. And the polls were so drastically wrong. And they've been wrong with Brexit. They've been wrong with so many different things and for a variety of reasons. Technology plays a hu- huge role in it. You know, sometimes some of these polling companies don't actually call people cell phones. They call landlines. That's, of course, going to skew in one way. There's you know just a, there's a million different reasons this happens, and it am, am I correct in saying like do not believe those polls when you see the like oh Pete Buttigieg would win by twelve points or Warren by sixteen or Biden by nine or whatever it is, am I correct in saying we shouldn't look at them too much and, and not believe what those they actually say?
1: Well, I think that's always the best approach. You know, head down, nose down, and assume your opponent's going to do everything right. <laughs> and get every vote they can imagine. Um, but, you know, the poll, listen, the polls in, in sixteen they did capture Hillary winning the national vote. I mean, I think, you know, on average, they had her winning by four to five points. She she won by three. Um, uh, and, you know, they definitely uh, had it wrong in some of the battleground states. Uh, but it wasn't just that, the, the campaign's own models, uh, meaning, you know, trying to predict how every voter was going to vote. Clinton's campaign obviously had her winning, as did Trump's campaign. I mean, Trump's campaign... Um, you know, they were headquartered in New York. And my understanding is, uh, you know, they went around and, and talked to all the news outlets and the networks, you know, as you do in a presidential campaign. That's kind of a tradition on election days. You talk about what you think is going to happen and why. And, you know, their discussion was mostly around why they lost, <laughs> you know, so everybody thought he was going to lose. So so let's never be uh, content again that we think we're heading into an election uh, with false confidence. But um, but there's a reason the polls were off in some of the battleground states. I think they under. Stated um some of the margins Trump would run up and exurb and in exurban and rural areas. I mean, you know, he there were some counties that flipped forty points. Hmm. Okay, from twelve to sixteen. That's amazing. I mean, he won counties like Erie County in Pennsylvania, um, that had been just rock solid Democrat um for, for decades. So, so so that happened. And then then I think, you know, turnout was you know okay for us in some places like Florida, although though Trump um really uh, exceeded his margins there. But you know, obviously, we suffered in places like Milwaukee and Detroit, it could have been better in Philly, but it was okay. So, that was more patchwork. So, so yeah, I think if you could give yourself a lot of confidence, you say, Look at these head to heads, they're all beating Trump, uh, in battleground states and nationally, and his approval ratings terrible. Um, so like, let's just not screw this up, right? We're headed to victory. But but again, what gives me concern is he's gonna define the race, he's gonna define the opponent. The gift he has is one of time. So our candidates are running on Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina trying to get the nomination. Trump's sole focus, his campaign's sole focus is building a winning presidential campaign operation, defining his record, defining the race, defining the Democrats in the least charitable way possible. Uh and, and he's gonna be ready for the general election, much more so than our nominee is. He will be ready for them. He will have the high ground. You can never say that about Donald Trump except in this regard. You know, they <laughs> will have a better sense of the voters in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Florida, and in Arizona, in North Carolina, even in Texas and Georgia, and Minnesota, than our candidate will. Because that's all Trump's doing. They're preparing that. They're they're understanding who they can register and What their volunteer operation looks like and who's persuadable and why and which voters may not be at all available to vote for Trump, but maybe they could push him to a third party. So, you know, Trump's got a lot of things on his side of the ledger, um, uh, you know, despite, you know, his sort of abysmal poll numbers uh, and the fact that he doesn't seem to care at all about growing his vote share. I mean, everything he does every day seems to be aimed at his base. But again, that's not unimportant because there's a millions and millions and millions of unregistered voters out there um, who look just like Trump's base, And they're going to spend a lot of time finding them and turning them out, as, as George Bush did again in, in 2004, when he, you know, I mean, John Kerry got all the vote they thought they needed to win Ohio. Um, and, you know, Bush still won by over 100,000 votes. So so I, I do think that um I just think the safest thing to do is to be happy that Trump's approval numbers are poor, to be happy that, you know, the head to heads don't look great. We can be happy about that. But that's very different than than how the vote is going to unfold, you know, on Election Day and the early vote leading up to it. Um, And the one thing I'm sure of is Trump will maximize his vote. He ultimately may not be able to get enough vote to win because he really has has become such a hard place for i think true swing voters to land i think there, there are enough of them open to an alternative if we can close that sale we should we should win but he's going to maximize his vote we know that um and as as crappy of a, a white house as he seems to run i think they're going to run a pretty good campaign uh and i think we better assume that anyway
0: yeah he's uh I, you know look i mean i think i think that there's part of him who is a total and utter moronic idiot and um, and a really terrible guy, but I think that he understands as someone I've worked in the media for twenty years, he understands the way the media works better than probably anyone I've ever interacted with. I think that he he just understands what what, what is going to push the I mean it's what I find so fascinating, just this one little thing, is he tweets about himself in a third person Donald Trump, President Trump, you know, this is unfair to President Trump because he knows that those screenshots are going to be put on the news and the people are, who are muted are going to be reading uh, those screenshots of his tweets uh, and they're going to understand exactly who it is. I mean, just those little nuances that he understands. And I think it's not to be underestimated as, as far as what they're capable of. And the digital stuff they're doing is, you know, we saw what they did last election. And they're going to be doing the same thing this election. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent
1: Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.
0: Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape. And we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months?
1: There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out.
0: I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene.
1: (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to
0: miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. All right, so I I want to switch gears a little bit and and take a little mini break from uh, Agent Orange and talk about the Senate race. So in 2020, I think there's around 11 Senate seats that are that the Democrats are eyeing uh, that they're going to see if they can take over. There are some, of course, that are better shots. Colorado, uh, for example, Arizona. Uh, you've got um, uh, Susan Collins, who is is thankfully going to be in trouble after voting for Kavanaugh. Do you think that there's a scenario where the Democrats can win back the Senate, or is is that is that a tougher challenge than than beating Donald Trump?
1: Well, there's a scenario and, and a lot of that does depend on what happens at the presidential race. So um, you know, we saw in 16, um, you know, Clinton um, you know, did not win Pennsylvania. We did not win the Pennsylvania Senate race. Um you know, as a good example, she wins New Hampshire, we win the New Hampshire Senate race. So I think that, um, these things don't travel exactly as mirrors, but, um, you know, if, if, if our democratic nominees winning Colorado by five or six points, that gives us a much better chance, obviously. Um, if we are, if we actually win Arizona, Mark Kelly could win in Arizona, um, in Maine, it may come down to how competitive we are in the second congressional district. So even if our nominee wins Maine, as Hillary did, um, if Trump wins the second congressional district like he did last time, you know, that may be enough to to give Collins uh, the boost to get over the top. So, uh, But we have strong candidates in all those races. Obviously, Alabama will be tough uh, defense. But I guess my view on it is we don't know. I, I think it's plausible. But the Senate's hard for us these days because Democratic support has... You know, really aggregated more in urban areas, right? So, you know, it wasn't too long ago we had two senators in in both Dakotas, <laughs> you know, and and we could we could basically win Senate races everywhere. And of course, we did win Alabama with Doug Jones, great candidate, ran a great campaign, but obviously, won under the most ideal circumstances, having Roy Moore there. We even saw that in 2012, McCaskill wins in Missouri in a tough race, but you know, against a really flawed candidate, and and things reverted to their mean. Uh, Last time, even though, um, you know, Jason Kander did, uh, you know, do so well in 16, um, um, you know, against Blunt, you know, we saw that that, you know, the tide in in Missouri was just too red for McCaskill. So I think the Senate's going to be hard for us because, you know, if you think about what's the most number of states a Democratic presidential candidate could win now in a landslide a lot, but in a truly competitive race, you're probably talking about 25 to 27 so you should think about that from a senate standpoint that that's kind of our fishing pond and maybe occasionally get lucky in another state because um you know the republican candidates terrible or our candidates just incandescent but um you know we've got a so so you colorado arizona maine winnable boy we better win them because we're not going to get lucky you know in other places anymore so you know over the long term we have to have democrats become more competitive in, you know, the plain states, in more southern states. Um, But right now, you know, there's more states than not where, all things being equal, the Republicans are going to win Senate races. So I think we're at a disadvantage in the Senate. So this is a cycle where we need to maximize the opportunity we have. We're we're not going to like where we are if we're winning half the, you know, battleground state Senate races that are truly battleground, that are in states that we, you know, normally win presidential races in, for instance. We have to really... um, that's where I think we have to have close to no margin for error, because it's it's harder for us to, I think, get to 50 in the Senate than it is Republicans. Um, and so um, we're at a disadvantage right now just because so many of those plain states and southern states, again, have become more rock solid Republican. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of excess votes. We obviously are winning. Um, you know, hey, what's Trump going to get in California? You know, 33, 34 percent of the vote. So a lot of goods going to come down ballot. But, you know, we're going to win those two Senate races. So I am concerned. I don't think that gets enough attention. Like, what is the Democratic Party ceiling right now in Senate races? And it's lower than the
0: Republicans. Do you think that there's a world in which Mitch McConnell can be voted out? I mean, I think that, you know, when you look at the most um, destructive people in in uh, Congress in the last 10 years, I think he's, he's definitely uh, number one. Um, and, you know, he's... His approval ratings aren't that great. You know, people in Kentucky are not huge fans of his. I know that he wins by a large margin just because of the Republican dem- Democrat um, uh, viewpoints there. But is there a world in which he could lose? Um, I would like to live in that world. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, he's considered. Uh, you know, there's polls that yes. say he's the most unpopular senator in uh, in the Senate. I mean, but what do you, what do you think? Is it a reality or is it just kind of daydreaming?
1: Well, I I fear it's more daydreaming, but 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 I think what is what is is almost certain to happen in Kentucky is Donald Trump will outperform Mitch McConnell, maybe considerably. And so question one would be, what is Trump's margin in Kentucky? You know, if it's 5644, you know, maybe our candidate can overcome that. If it's 6040, that's harder. So there's just physics there um, that I think we have to account for. Um, But. But he's as vulnerable as he's ever been, um, you know. I, I think that he's very—he's um, um, such a ripe target on being the definition of what's wrong with Washington, and not from a partisan standpoint, just from corruption and and basically um, fully having gone Washington. Um, and so, um, so to me, that's really the question: like, what? At what number? Um, can our Democratic candidate survive in terms of what Trump gets? Right. And so my sense is, that, you know, if it's 55, 45 or 56, 44, or 57, 43, um, I think McConnell will underperform Trump enough that that then becomes a dead heat race. Uh, if Trump's winning at 60, 62, 64, um, I guess it's not out of the question. But think about how many voters in Kentucky then have to go Trump Democrat for the Senate. That's a lot. Mm. So um, so that's my concern there um but but you know he's definitely um as weak as he's ever been um I don't know if he's a piñata but I, but I think you can tee off on him back home um and because he you know he's had some good candidates run against him but but he hasn't had the toughest of races for a very very long time um and so uh, particularly in the modern digital age so um you know if we have a, a great candidate emerge I I know we've got you know Amy McGrath running there's some other candidates speaking of uh, getting in there Um, who run a smart, sophisticated, digital Kentucky-first campaign, they'll make it close. So, you know, the Jason Kander-Race is a great example. I mean, he came within three of Blunt, um, you know, even as Hillary was losing the state, if I recall, by 14, 16 points. So there becomes just a point where, you know, the tides are too strong. But what I'm excited about is, um, you know, with data today and, and good polling and good modeling, you know, the campaign down in Kentucky should have a pretty good sense of, okay, who are the... Trump voters that are available to us. Um, and and that'll be a big part of the campaign. And then, and of course, you know, we've we've got the ability to drive big uh, turnout amongst young voters and, and around among African-Americans. And I think for a lot of voters in Kentucky, they'll be as excited to vote against McConnell as they are against Trump. And that's quite unique.
0: Do you think that um, you just mentioned, you know, the polling data and, and, and the modeling and so on? you know it's as someone who covers technology it's been fascinating to watch the impact big data has played on every industry imaginable is it when it comes to these these battleground states to these to these you know the way you plan a um, an attack against someone like McConnell or Trump or something like that is it playing a much bigger role and a much more accurate role now
1: yeah, so so even though the models were off in, in sixteen, they were on they were right in a lot of eighteen races. I've certainly had the experience of models being more right than wrong, and just like in a private sector company, that's enormously helpful because you know you understand who your various audiences are. You're then more efficient with your resources. Uh, you're you're talking to the right people about the right issue. You're providing volunteers really good lists with great hygiene. So nothing's more frustrating as a volunteer to go out. If you're given a list of, hey, here's 12 people that, you know, we think are persuadable in your neighborhood and, and none of them are. Well, that's deeply frustrating or, you know, 12 people that we think are at risk of not voting. And they're all like, I voted for the last four elections. I'm voting like that's really important to a good volunteer experience. So, yeah, great data makes everybody smarter, you know, because you're, you're just operating with that level of intelligence and insight. Um, but you don't want to cut it too, particularly with Trump. I mean, he's he 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 he's kind of a model buster. You know, he he gets the votes of people who who maybe traditionally in most races vote Democratic. He also, um, you know, provides opportunity with particularly like women suburban voters who might have voted even a eighteen Republican and voted in twelve Republican and fourteen, but just can't do Trump. So so I think you have to have an expansive view of these universes. But, you know, if you if you've got a good model and, and you're testing it a lot and it's proving out, it's just going to make you smarter. You're going to be talking to the voters you need to talk to about the things you need to talk to them about. You can also then think about what's the best way to reach them from an advertising standpoint. Most of that's going to be digital, but but some of it can still be television and radio or podcasts. So um, it, it helps a great deal. So uh, I'm a big believer in in models. I'm a big believer in data. Uh, I don't believe you should be slave to them. And I think you should be uh, constantly testing how can they be wrong. So in this election, I would always be giving Trump more support than the model suggests, (laughs) just to be sure. Um, You know, if you think registration is going to be at X, I'd give him Z. And if you think his persuasion ceiling is Y, you know, uh, I'd again give him Z Um, because I I don't think we want to do is undershoot the runway here and somehow um, model out an election. Um, that in reality um, is too easy for us to win. So I would definitely, you know, make the degree of difficulty hard. Um, you know, when you're looking at your data, but you know, good models again, whether you're running a consumer company or or a presidential campaign or you know a media company, uh, the more you know about your potential audiences, the smarter you'll be. And that that doesn't mean you should have 12 different messages for 12 different audiences. Like everything you say has to fit it under your core message architecture. Um, but you know, if somebody cares about healthcare and doesn't care about trade, that's important to know.
0: Um, okay, so if you you have been on the ground, you've done this, you understand better than anyone I think I've ever spoken to, you know how to apply your resources, both uh, your candidate and where you're going to send them, given that there's only a certain amount of hours in the day that they can go somewhere and who they can speak to, and so on, and of course your you know money, like how much do you put to digital, how much do you put to traditional media. If you were, if we, let's just we won't say a name, but let's just say we you were running the campaign for, um, for one of our for our Democratic candidate who is the nominee uh, up against Trump. What's the strategy you're going to take with your resources that you have?
1: Well, I think that's a data you know driven answer. So you step back and say, okay, here's all the people we ultimately need to care about. So of course you don't care about everybody who's going to vote for you because a lot of those people are definitely going to vote and definitely vote for you. So who are your true persuasion targets? Who are the people you're trying to register? Who are the people who are registered that your concern might not turn out and who are the people you're concerned might vote third party. So you step back from that and then you 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 have, you know, to the extent you you know, you have some individualized data but then you build models on that and say okay, this is a voter who likely you know, we should just reach through digital channels in this specific digital channel. Um, you know, this is uh, this voter belongs to a cohort where television could still be important. Like I just was on my podcast had Bernie Sanders campaign manager on it. They just started television advertising this week. And I asked him why, because, you know, they're sort of known as the digital first. Kennedy said, "Listen, we clearly need to grow our support amongst older voters, and we need to reach them through TV. <laughs> you know, so radio still be important. Mail, uh, we, you want to talk to everybody you can through volunteers. So it's data driven. And what about states? Um,
0: the states that you really kind of focus on, or do well, you go for? So,
1: so it'll be so so. And the same thing goes with time. The most important decision is actually not the financial resources; it's the allocation of the candidate's time. So that all throws through. You know, who? What are your core battlegrounds? Um, and within that." You know, you have data coming in every day about how you're doing in the campaign. And, you know, when Barack Obama was in, um, you know, Tallahassee in 2012 instead of uh, Orlando, there was a reason for it. It's because we either saw problems or opportunity in our data. Um, So so you want to respond to that in the way you're spending money, um, the way you're allocating, um, you know, your candidate's time and and the candidate's family. So um, I'd imagine, you know. This time, it's October now, so this time next year, I'm sure the campaigns are going to be spending a lot of time and money in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, both Trump and the Democrat. I would suspect North Carolina and Arizona. I think the question then is Minnesota, Florida, Texas, and Georgia, did they become core battlegrounds? And if so, did they hang in there? Because, you know, you may make a decision in June or July that X state's a battleground, but if by October you just don't see a win number, um, you know, you better get out. Like, the worst thing to do is, is even though you'll get a bad press day, you know, so-and-so candidate decides to, you know, drop out of or, or reduce their spending, that's better than putting bad money after bad money. So, so those are, that's the chess match, right? Which is, and you out the other thing you got to pay attention to is when are people voting? So in states that have heavy early voting in October, North Carolina, Arizona, Florida, um, you're going to want to make sure you're spending a lot of time in those states as people are voting. Pennsylvania, um, you know, traditionally doesn't have as much early vote. So you're going to spend more time there late. So you also have to build um, a cadence around the voting calendar. Registration deadlines. If there's a registration deadline in a state that doesn't have same-day voter registration, um, that's a core battleground. It'd be really great for the candidate to be there that day or the day before, <laughs> you know, to remind people to register. So so you have to be mindful of, of you know, what's going on around you and not just have tunnel vision um, and, and make smart decisions based on that.
0: All right, we have time for a couple of last questions. Um, and so, the one of the questions I have is. I remember I once saw President Clinton speak, and he talked about how in his viewpoint, um, you get – people go to the polls for one reason, mostly. Some people go for multi- multiple reasons, but you know, you may go because of the weather that day. You may go because of some healthcare issue or, or whatever, or because you like this person more than that person. But it's usually one thing that you go to the polls for. Do you think it's kind of accurate to say that abortion is going to play a huge role in this election given the fact that who if Trump wins you know and he's probably going to get if that's the case he would probably get another supreme court nominee if not two and that could swing the vote on abortion do you think that that's going to be the thing that that a lot of the people who will go to the polls that may not have normally done so in his favor or against him is that is that what they're doing
1: Yeah, It's a great question. Now, first of all, most Americans are going to vote, you know, so you have a lot of regular voters. So so I think as it relates to abortion or any other issue. So first of all, there's a category of people who are going to vote, but maybe an issue like that gets them to become involved, to volunteer, to contribute money, to become a precinct captain or a neighborhood team leader. So there's an intensity question, not just a participation question. But for the cohort of voters who may be on the fence, so think about that. There could be a young woman or a young man, you know, in 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 the, in in the suburbs of, of Madison, Wisconsin, um, and it's you know two weeks before the election, and says, you know, I hate Trump, uh, but I don't really like the Democrat. You know, they're, they're, I don't agree with them on taxes or health care. I'm not sure. Um, you know, so I'm not sure if I'm going to vote. Well, if, if if you can determine that they care about choice, you know, that you can have a great conversation then. So if you're a volunteer on their doorstep to say, listen. I, you know, I, you know, I agree, like, you know, I, I'm not wild about everything either. But what I know is it's likely that that Trump's going to get it, you know, a couple more nominations. So it would be a seven two court. Think about more Brett Kavanaugh's and abortion will be illegal uh, in the rest of this land. And so many women has health care issues now um, will be on the wrong side of history. So the only way to prevent that is voting. I, I think it's so. So, yes, I, I do think the court will be a big issue. It will be a big issue for Trump, because as much as I fear you know, a 7-2 court with two more Kavanaugh's, you know, there's a lot of people in Trump's base who, you know, that'll be their Riley and cry as well. But I, I do think um, it is not hyperbole, I'm sorry, it's not an exaggeration to say that the fate of women's health care in this country uh, is going to rest on this election on November 3rd. And that should get a lot of people both to register vote and 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 be intense. So, um, but but it'll be on both sides. And um, I think that's going to be one of those campaigns within a campaign um, that is going to be so critical. Um, but 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 so so that's a good example of whatever benefit we can get out of that increased volunteer hours, increased registration, increased turnout, increased vote share. And we need to strive to get all of it. We better make sure it's more than what Trump's doing on his side, because that's an issue he clearly is going to try and leverage. So. um uh, it's a great question. Um, and, and again, it's important for people to understand that the vote of someone who's holding their nose to vote for your candidate counts the exact same <laughs> as someone who's wearing your candidate's T-shirt and is volunteering. Yeah. They count the same. And so there's going to be a bunch of people at the end for those of us out there talking to voters who are conflicted about whether to vote or who to vote for. Like, I'd be careful about, you know, saying, you know what? Our candidate is going to be the best president of history of the United States. You know, if you feel that way. Great. There's a lot of people who aren't going to buy that. And a lot of people just want to know, like, I don't really like Trump, but I'm not sold on your person either. So maybe I won't vote or maybe I'll vote third party. And all of us who are engaged with a voter like that better treat like that, treat that like the most important conversation we've ever had in in our life. Because if just think of 10,000 people having conversations like that in any given day, you know, over a period of days, that's like the margin in the election.
0: All right. So, last question: You uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast and who you will be interviewing, um, and, and what we can learn uh, more about as as this this nightmare continues to unfold <laughs> in front of us.
1: Well, thanks for asking, Nick. It's, it's called Campaign HQ, and it's available on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. So I encourage you to check it out, download it, and subscribe. Um, there's a lot of great podcasts out there. I mean, it's kind of like TV these days, like Netflix, Amazon. You, you hear every day about a podcast you're not listening to that sounds awesome. It almost gives you anxiety, right? So, you know, that's sports. It's entertainment. It's technology like you're doing or, or politics. So there's a lot of great podcasts. So my first question I ask myself, is there something um, that's missing out there? And, and so what, what I'm doing in this podcast, I, I've had three so far. I've had on the campaign managers for Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, the senior uh, chief chief strategist for Elizabeth Warren. So I'm going to have a lot of the folks who are involved in these campaigns, uh, digital directors, state directors, uh, delegate experts, folks who are expert in, in in some of the allocation questions you've asked around schedule and, and, and resources and bring the listeners a little deeper into the campaign so it's it's less about you know what's going on day to day or the great tweet of the week or the great debate line and spending a lot of time let's talk about bernie sanders elizabeth warren you know Joe Biden, what is their pathway to the nomination? What do they have to get in Iowa? How are they putting together their campaign to, to go the distance as we get into the bigger states in March and April? What would the battleground state map be for them against Trump? What kind of operation are they putting together? Where are they hiring their talent? So it's just it's a deep dive. So if, if you follow campaigns closely, I think you'll like it. Um, if you're just looking for Kind of, you know, a, a quick bite or, or or snack food about what's happened that week. That's not the place to come. But if if you want to understand more, so my hope is folks who listen to my podcast, you know, will become experts on Iowa and and the caucus <laughs> process and the South Carolina primary and delegate allocation. And and really, as we get into the general election, we've talked a lot in this interview about battleground states. That's all that matters. So for folks to understand a little bit more about registration trends and turnout trends and. Why, you know, in the general election, why did Trump go to Grand Rapids today? What's he, what's he trying to accomplish in Grand Rapids today? Why was the Democrats spending time and money in the panhandle of Florida? What do they see there? So, really, to, to go deep um, uh, with a microscope in, into what I think matters in these presidential campaigns um, and expose listeners to the people who are in the arena right now who, who aren't simply following the race, but they're actually um, making the race um, and, and the ones, you know, uh, kind of in the bunker. So, so that's what we're trying to do with the show. And, and you're nice to ask.
0: Well, thanks so much for taking the time. This has been fascinating. I'm going to, I'm going to twist your arm to come back on once we get through the, the next few months and, um, uh, explain more to us. And, uh, yeah, thanks so much. Really appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks, Nick. I, I'd be happy to do that. And, you know, by that point, we'll know what's going on with impeachment and who our nominee is and, what the general election looks like but my suspicion is it won't be much different than now which is you know you look at polls and you'd probably rather be the democrat than republican but you have an uneasy feeling that trump's going to overperform them and this is going to take just an an, an heroic effort not just by our candidate and and their campaign but all of us uh to to make sure we depose the menace that is donald trump
0: here here to that thank you so much i really appreciate it thanks nick Thanks to my guest today, David Pluff. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you, of course, to my sponsors. The New Yorker and KiwiCo. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. And don't forget to go over and subscribe to David's podcast. It's Campaign HQ. You can find it wherever you get this podcast. It's worth every second of your earlobes. I will see you all next week.